Welcome to the Nobles You podcast. Thanks for listening, and we are glad you are with us. My name is Mike Kainlin, the Director of Teaching and Learning here at Nobles, and I'll be your host today. First, I want to briefly explain the purpose of the podcast and what we're hoping to provide you. So on the podcast, we speak with faculty and staff members all involved with our work related to teaching and learning, academic technology, DEI culture and practices, socio-emotional learning, and more. Our faculty and staff here are filled with expertise in a wide range of subjects. Through the podcast, we hope to learn from our guests who provide insight into the complex and fascinating world of education. Today, we have a very special, special, special guest, Dick Baker, uh, former head of school from the mid-1980s to 2000, arrived at Nobles in 1971, and still is our legendary English teacher who has instructed thousands of students over the years, all who attest to his rigor, his candor, and his ability to form really meaningful student relationships. So Dick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. All right. So let's start early. And I was just curious, a lot of people associate you with your teaching and your leadership, but I sort of want to start with your childhood. So what are some fond memories from growing up? Well, um, I grew up in an uh, independent school in Connecticut. My father was a French teacher. Um, for the first 11 years, I lived in Kent, Connecticut, and lived an idyllic childhood, um, basically as a result of the proximity to the school in which I could uh, share in all the athletics that the school was involved in and plays and musical events. But most importantly was the the landscape of the school, which was incredibly rural and allowed um, those of us who were on the faculty uh, to play in woods, creeks, rivers um, all the time in a, an amazingly free-wheeling childhood in which it seemed to me our parents never um, held us back, gave us kind of total freedom. Um, And I I attribute that to a great deal of who I am today. Thank you. You know, next question also related to your childhood. I I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that you have hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of students now who would name you as one of their role models growing up. I was curious who some of your role models were growing up. In a sense, that's an embarrassing question because I am not, it's hard for me to identify any of as a as a child, that is, um, before the age of twelve, I can't think of anyone who was a role model for me. Particularly, my parents weren't. They were elderly people who had adopted me. Um, and uh, while I lived a wonderful childhood with them and and loved them very much, I can't say that either of them was a role model. Um, By the time I got to high school, that is an independent school, there were relatively few faculty um, who represented role models to me. Uh, In in writing up my own life and the memoir, um, I comment on this because it surprises me that I had no mentors at all that I can think of. And I don't really know why that was. There there were people I was close to. The list, as I remember it, from what I have written, uh, if I take my life as a whole, not just childhood, uh, my wife, um, one or two teachers from uh, Kent School, 
no teachers from Harvard, no teachers from uh, graduate school. Um, some have suggested that it's because I'm a highly individualistic guy and I don't share myself easily with other people. Um, that may or may not be true. I have, I have good friends. I wouldn't call any of them mentors uh, at all. So I think there's a paucity of um, individuals who even might in the long run. There was a, there were a couple of teachers at Nobles. Uh, I mean, at Kent, whom I liked. Um, one. A man named Armstrong was beloved by everybody because they were terrified of him. Um, and I think I fell into that category. He was an iconoclastic character, and um, we all kind of worshipped him from afar, but didn't want to get too close. Uh, no other, no other teacher in high school made much of an impression on me. Um, that in itself seems to be a salient quality. I, I don't have the psychological background to be able to tell you why that was the case, but it was. I guess I have a follow-up to that question then, you know, and, and it's related to entering education, which I think the best educators can say they are role models. Was that part of your motivation for becoming role models for others? Was that you didn't have your own? Or do you think those two weren't related? It's certainly possible, but not in any kind of uh, clear way. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I... <laughs> People ask me, how did I get into education? And you may want to ask that question later. I, I do. Actually, that was my next question. So go for it. So I can go for it now. Uh, you know, I, I went to college thinking I would be a businessman. Um, and you got to have Ec 1 to be a businessman, or so I thought. And so I took Ec 1, uh, which bored me to death. And I quickly got out of it after uh, the Christmas break. Um, I kind of like my English courses, so I stayed with English and majored in English. Never very good at it, um, but um, w one of the things that one of the students thought helped uh, helped me mentally was that nothing was particularly important to me. I kind of was unconscious through through my uh, m much of my childhood and early adulthood, and I didn't get upset about things if I, if things didn't work out. Well, oh, that, they didn't work out. I have n no memory of any of the kinds of stress that I see daily in almost every student I teach. If I flunk the test, it didn't make any difference to me. Um, that was because college didn't make any much difference to me. I figured I would go to college someplace, and there wasn't anything like the pressure that these children have to face um, from families, from the school, uh, as far as where they go to college. And there wasn't a sense of hierarchy. I suppose there was, but um, in, in terms of the colleges, you know, I applied to a few colleges. I got into a college. I went to that college. Uh, there was no thought given to whether it was an appropriate place for me to be. It wasn't, but uh, you know, I didn't know that until years later. I have the times changed. Um, and as you begin to speak about nobles, Next question I have is, how did you arrive here? It sounds like you could have gone a lot of different career paths, didn't necessarily know exactly where you wanted to end up. This, so. is, this is going to be even more <laughs> difficult for you. So here I am. I'm, you know, I've gone through college. I've gone through three years in the military, um, a serious job in the military. Um, I go into graduate school. I spent six years in graduate school working towards my PhD, enjoyed some of that a great deal. 
Um, and at the end of six years, I've been teaching there, t- teaching at Berkeley for three years. Um, but they weren't going to extend it another year. I, I used up the stipend that I was working under. And so I had to get a job. And I had, at that time, two children. And so there was a certain amount of pressure on me. You better get a job so everybody can eat next year. The colleges that I applied to all were waiting on state legislators, legislatures to pass um, budgets so they could see whether they could afford another teacher. And I was not going to get a job at Williams or Harvard or Princeton. Uh, I was a long ways from that. But I would have had I could have gotten a job at certain uh, University of California places and probably most state universities. So I was concerned about the following year. What I did was, you know, I knew a little bit about prep schools. I said, I'll apply to prep schools, maybe teach a couple of years in a prep school, and then go back to college teaching. Um, I sent off a bunch of letters, not to Nobles. I didn't even know Nobles existed. I had vague ideas. There were kids in my class in in college that uh, came from Nobles, but I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know where it was. Um, I applied to Exeter. Um, Ted Gleason, uh, the headmaster elect of nobles, was uh, at that time looking for the head of an English department uh, because the guy here had, had retired. So he was looking for the head of the English department. He asked the English head at Exeter if there were any appropriate candidates in his file. The guy pulled out my file. Gleason looked at it, called me up, offered me a job. Uh, it was ridiculous. I mean, I, I and this is in the seventies. I could have been the act, absolute opposite of what would have fit in at Nobles. I wasn't, <laughs> but I could have been. And they, they didn't even look at me. Um, they just offered me the job. After they offered me the job, this is not the way it works now. Uh, uh, they uh, paid for my way to come back from California for a weekend to meet with Ted Gleason, which I did, and I had a wonderful time with him. Um, and we, we worked well together. Uh, and w- when uh, then I was supposed to go to meet Elliot Putnam because he was the one who was actually going to sign the contract because Ted wasn't, he was only elect at that point. And so the, uh, Elliot gave me directions. I, I, I thought, I thought this, the job that I had accepted was in Cambridge. I thought it was BB&N or BNN as it was then. And I was planning to go to BNN to see Mr. Putnam. But then he gave me a whole bunch of directions and I ended up in Denham. Um and I've been here for a long time. Maybe, maybe I felt that's difficulty getting there that I, I wouldn't wouldn't dare ever leave. Uh, I don't know, but it's a, it's a kind of a curious story. Um, and so that's how I got to Nobles, uh, thinking it was some other place. Um, and I, I did something that I, uh, you know, I had been in leadership roles. Um, both in school and in the military. And what I did was something you never do. I changed the whole English department before I even got here. Um, and uh, we, we moved from a basically a literary history uh, English department to a um, self-selecting. So each teacher could select his or her own, well, his, because there were no females, his texts. Um, and I love that because that's what I wanted to teach. 
since then, I've changed my mind on the texts and whether they were even important. Um, but I haven't changed my mind on the importance of independence for teachers. So let's keep with the noble story. And, and by the way, I'd also like to think that times have changed in terms of how difficult it is to get a job, or at least they do interview us now. So that was uh, curious for me to hear your <laughs> anecdote about that. But the noble story goes on. And so, and you come in as an English teacher and, and English leader, and then you become head of school in the 1980s. Well, the interesting and, thing. This, is a, this will give you a, a, an insight into the school. I came as the head of the English department. I taught four courses. I, co- I coached two sports. I, you know, I did the usual stuff. Um, Van Gleeson wanted me to become the academic dean. So I became the ac- academic dean doing essentially what Denning has been doing, running uh, the committee of department heads, um, things like th- like that. And... Um, continuing to do all the other things, continuing to be the head of the English department. Um, And about uh, in the late 70s, uh, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, uh, probably 78, 79, uh, I went to him and said, this is ridiculous. I can't do all this. Uh, I'm going to do a half-assed job here, but uh, you need to appoint someone to do this job and take away a lot of the peripheral things that I'm doing. He just smiled at me and went on doing just the way he wanted. He didn't want to add another person to the faculty. And so I continued to do that job in a half-assed way and and became frustrated with it. Um, I took a year to teach in England. I came back and I was essentially doing the same thing. I gave up the head of the English department. Uh, but I, I, uh, he said, well, why don't you do this job that you have constructed? I said, I don't want to do this job that I've constructed. I don't want to give up any teaching responsibility. And that's what you need. And so, um, we just kept going uh, the same way until he took a sabbatical, went out to New Mexico, and uh, he asked me if I would serve as the acting head, which I said I would do. Um, not wanting to do it particularly, but obviously he was a good friend. If somebody had to do the job, he asked me to do it. I said I'd do it. So he's out in New Mexico. He writes me and says, I don't want to come back to the school. Um, I say, you know, I say to myself, thanks a lot. Uh, (laughs) And then, of course, the job was, we got to pick a new head. And the big question was, well, would Baker consider being the head? And that was about as hard a decision as anything uh, I've had to make in my entire life. I had no interest in the job at all. Um, And I had a lot of pressure from board members take it seriously to consider it. Um, one particular person really suggested that, uh, that this was important for me to do it and accept the responsibility. Here's the way I thought of it. Gleason had at that time for 10 or 12 years, taken all the crap that, um, that a headmaster has to do. And allowed me to teach with relative freedom. Um, 
And I thought, well, all right, I have a responsibility to do the same for the teachers now. I need to, I need to do for a while. I was thinking a couple of years. Um, what Gleason had done for me, which is to leave me relatively free to do my teaching as I wanted to do it. So I said yes. Um, became the head um, with certain fear and trepidation. Um, it was all that I thought it would be miserable. Um, <laughs> so I have a question, you know, as you're taking on this role, did you have specific goals in mind that you had observed over the years or was it just, I need to be the head? My goal was to get through it basically. <laughs> uh, now, if we are going to be serious, I mean, obviously I've been working in, uh, with all the main ideas that float in a school for 15 years, nearly at that point. Um, so I was cognizant of what the school needed. And um, one of the reasons that Gleason left was the fact that the admissions area had become weak and he didn't have much interest in doing much about it. And I had a lot of interest in doing a lot about it. Um, so one of the goals was to improve, upgrade the admis admissions, get not no longer accept students who could not do the work here. Um, secondly, to upgrade, I mean, I was an academic, and there were other people at the school who were in, who who held other areas of the school more important than the academic. I was an academic, and so I pushed on that. Um, and so one of my goals was to upgrade the image, the academic image of the school, and to a certain extent, that meant to. Um, improve the quality of the teaching as best I could. I, I think I didn't understand that that's not an easy thing to do, but um, that was one of the goals. I wanted the school, I said this over and over again, to be known for the quality of its teaching. Um, then the and do, you, do, you feel, do you feel looking back that you accomplished what you set out to do? I know the head of school thing was not necessarily what you... If I did, it was only because it was so easy to make improvements because the place needed them so much, you know, Got it. that I was it. turning out the best school in the world, but it became a better place because it was, that was easy. It was easy to make improvements. Well, I have to say in turn, you know, I've been here about 10 years in terms of the narrative that I've heard. I know you're saying that it may not have been a lot of work, but I often hear about the culture of Noble and Greeno school really changing under your tenure so yeah, that, you know one, one of the nice things about it is it changes whether you want it to or not it, it, it as the head of school you're you dictate the culture and you know i'm i'm an academic and so that's what the school became known for and that was kind of what i wanted so i was pleased i uh, was pleased with that i also wanted i mean the school needed a lot of building and one of the things that I'm both proud of and disappointed in is that uh, one of the major accomplishments is I build a lot of buildings. Well, I got no interest in building buildings, <laughs> uh, but the school needed buildings built. So we build a lot of buildings. Um, and that was always obviously beneficial to the place, both aesthetically and I think probably practically speaking. So there were those goals. The last goal I'll, say, I'll speak of, 
because I think it is not much, it's not popular now, is I wanted to maintain the traditions of the school that I knew had known for the last 10 or 12 years. I, I didn't want to change those traditions. Uh, I'm not mm-hmm. sure that's true today. So I know it's always very striking when people do speak to you that you, know, you might assume that you desperately wanted the head of school job or it was your dream based on the outcome. But I also like asking a little bit about leadership, even though you didn't pursue it. For those that are aspiring to serve as effective school leaders, what qualities or attributes do you think are most important? And we, we can talk about teaching in a little bit, but on a leadership level, what's most crucial to having some success? Well, Again, um, I, I hope I don't undercut you. I mean, my leadership comes from the forcefulness of my personality um, and uh, with a heavy dash of humor. Um, I, I think I, I, I had learned enough in the military to know that you were responsible for the people under you and you had to take, take care of them. Um, and I, I think I always took care of them. At least I took care of the ones that were important to the school. Um, and it, it's, I, I suppose there's a way of thinking of the school that I was going to remake the school. I wasn't going to remake the school. I, I, I was going to impose a culture which was implicit um, in my personality. And mm-hmm. whether that was good for the school or not, uh, that's what ha- that's what happens, whether you like it or not. And I, you know, ed schools come out with all these ideas about uh, leadership and things like that. I don't think that makes a heck of a lot of difference. Um, and I, fair I, enough. Um, I, fair I, enough. I think you, if if you select a, a person to do a job, you are you are picking that person for the qualities of the personal qualities that that person has. Um, And those personal qualities become the culture of the job. Um, And I don't know whether they chose well with me or not well with me. Obviously it was at a different, difficult time. I was, I was Gleason's right hand guy. uh, And yet the school probably wanted something slightly different from Gleason and maybe I was that too. I don't, I, you know, I don't, I don't really know. Uh, well, I think there's a natural transition here because I was going to ask next about your teaching and you're known for many things, not only your rigor, but maybe the top of the list is your rigor. So what's interesting is as a leader, I think you impose that if we use that word on the school of making this a more rigorous place. But one thing I wanted to ask is, you know, I think a lot of students hear rigor and they they fly away and they run away. They, they don't want a teacher who's going to be known as the most rigorous teacher in the school. And yet right. over the years, students have flocked to your classes for your mentorship. A lot of published authors that have been in the room as you've taught. So why do you think students flock to the classes? Well, that's a hard question for me to answer. Um, but, I, you know, I... Um... I would say humor, um, energy, kindness. Um, I, I try to always be kind to students, no matter what they're like. Um, love. Um, 
I've come to that conclusion relatively late in my time here, uh, but I I think I I can't. I have come to love the students I teach. Uh, I had a line in a speech I gave a few years ago to the big graduates, and um, it had to do with the last class that that they were the last class at Nobles for them happened to be an English class, happened to be an elective. And I had taken them out to some grassy knolls by the uh, castle. And we'd had the last class. And when it was over, they ran off to do what they do after the last class, jump up and down. Uh, and I thought to my, I thought to myself, if, if I, if I wasn't so hidebound, um, and if I wasn't so restricted in the things, in the way I thought of things, I'd have fallen on my knees and I'd have wept for the loss of them. And that's kind mm. of the way I always feel when the kids that I love graduate. I'm, I'm losing them. Uh, are they my, my own children? No. But there is a fine line that is hard to articulate. Um, um, you know, pretty pretty much always. If I if I'm teaching a senior elective, then I come to love those kids, and I don't want them to go. I don't want summer vacation to come. That's really saying something. I don't want summer vacation to come because that's the last I'm going to see of them. I mean, I had two yeah. kids in class today who graduated uh, six years ago, I guess seven years ago. Uh, it was wonderful to see them. Um, I doted on them then. I dote on them now. Um, and I think that sense of affection goes a long way towards creating um, a bond between me and any students. I, I think a lot of your students would attest to the kindness and the love that I think you demonstrate. I think that's something that does resonate with students for sure. Um, just a few questions left. So one was, as you reflect back on your career, particularly in the classroom, you know, how has your teaching style shifted over the years? Man, you get to be my age. It's tough to remember what you did last week, let alone, let alone uh, 50 years ago. I, I, I came in here. I Oh, I've been teaching for three years at Cal. I I I couldn't be. But like the like the day, <laughs> I, I joked to the fact that the admissions people walk by my door and it's open. I'm lying on the floor drawing pictures on the rug, um, and you know that kind of exuberance. Um, most students like are, are drawn to that. Um, and do I manufacture it to a certain extent? Yes. To a certain extent, it's artificial. But to another extent, that's who I am. Um, and I, I enjoy it. I think any kid that was in my class would know that I enjoyed, I enjoyed teaching. I don't enjoy a lot of the ancillary aspect of teaching, like correcting papers. But I do enjoy... Uh, and I don't think my style has changed. Like, and I just don't know. I mean, what did I do? And I, you know, I, here's a difference. When I was first here, you know, I had been studying American literature for six years. I was a scholar of American literature. Um, and when I came in here, the 
books that I chose were the important things. Um, and I chose some odd books um, and enjoyed teaching them. Uh, gradually, the books themselves became less and less important to the point now they are almost totally unimportant. And what I'm interested in is building relationships with the 14 kids that I teach. Um, and sometimes the books help me do that, and sometimes they're a, a force against me. But that's that's what I'm trying to do now. Makes a lot of sense. I think a lot of teachers might go that route. You sometimes initially feel like it's all about the academic choices or the text and but, if, but yeah. I, I, you know if i could tell you how little of that means to me now all right so at your wise age which we need not name it's very impressive you're still in the classroom so what keeps you going dick i suppose the things that i've just said uh you know the fact that i'm that you know here's what i think at some point i'm going to retire i figure i've got one year after i retire i'll be dead because I feel that um, teaching generates an energy in me that I would not have if I stopped teaching. I mean, I'd sit and watch YouTube videos probably. You know, I don't know what I'd do. I'd read some books. Uh, but I would not have the energy to lie down on the floor and draw pictures uh, trying to get my kids to understand difficult prose. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't do that. And when I come away from doing that, I'm, I'm upbeat. Uh, this is cool. Um, I wouldn't have this, uh, this kind of thing, the tr trivial thing that I love. You know, there were disguises yesterday or costumes. And one kid had Bob on a piece of paper uh, kind of at her belt. And I said, who's Bob? And she said, Bob the Builder. Uh, I said, Bob the Builder? Is Bob the Builder still around? And then I said, Bob the Builder, he can build it. And, you know, that was that was the way I spent the rest of the class, you know, uh, talking to the kids about Bob the Builder. I, you know, without class, without kids to respond to that, no, I'd be dead in a year. I hope not. We all cross our fingers. That's not the case, although I, I hear where you're coming from. All right. So anything else in your mind? Anything else you want to mention before we wrap up? Yeah, there is one thing, uh, because I see it so often in young people come in and they want to they come in, uh, they teach for a couple of years, uh, then they aspire to be the dean of the second class or something. And then they aspire to and they see progress, improvement in their lives as being channeled through various jobs, which they think are the important things. I don't know, the various administrative jobs that people have. I had a rule that the people who got the highest salaries were the pure teachers. If you took on a role as a dean of something, I cut your salary. It wasn't important. It wasn't important. What I wanted to make clear was that the most important thing that a faculty member here could do would be to teach, not to administer. I had administered myself to death, whereas I think as a teacher, marginally, I could say I benefited the school. Well, I mean, I think that anecdote and your focus on teaching 
really sums up uh, and synthesizes a lot of the themes that you were speaking about in terms of how much you enjoy, you focus, you prioritize in your leadership on the role of the teacher. And I think that legacy, legacies are always difficult to define, but I think that legacy still does continue here at Nobles. And it's, it's certainly a privilege. Nobody knows me. I mean, they, I, I think I probably have a reputation of being an eccentric old man. And that's, <laughs> that's pretty true. <laughs> Oh, you know, another thing that is uh, important to me, um, being old helps. Uh, you know, the kids um, are inclined to like me a little bit because I am a grandfather figure. You know, we talk about relationships so much at Nobles. And I think, again, when I think about you know, the legacy that you've left and continue to leave and continue to represent, it is that notion of forming really, really, really meaningful, close relationships with students. Well, maybe if, you know, if I could have contributed 5% of that to the, the collective identity of the place, that would be good. So we are out of time. All right. Um, I'm really, really, really excited that we were able to have this conversation. Also just wanted our listeners to know that we've interviewed several other faculty and staff here at Noble. So if you get a chance, you can check out the Nobles You podcast, wherever you check out your podcasts. If not, hopefully we'll see you back here for next time. And thank you again, Dick, for being a part of this. I enjoyed it very much. You know, one of the things that you probably know as someone who orchestrates this, people like to talk about themselves. <laughs> we'll end on that note. Dick Baker. Goodbye.